Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alva. And we're joined on the New Statesman podcast today by our international managing editor, Alex Kruger, to discuss the war in Ukraine. And you ask us, is the pandemic over? So we're recording this episode on the morning that Russia has launched a full-scale invasion in Ukraine. And we're really pleased to be joined by our international managing editor, Alex Kruger. I think this is your debut on the New Statesman podcast, is it? Yes, it is. I've I've done World Review, but I haven't yet had the pleasure of of being on the New Statesman podcast. So this is a first. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know it's um, probably the busiest morning (laughs) so far in your your time with us. But um, would you mind by first starting by telling us what's actually happening in Ukraine? What are you hearing from people there? And were they prepared for this? So what seems to have happened, you know, there was this mobilisation a couple of days ago when Putin said he was sending Russian forces over the border into these two occupied separatist breakaway areas in eastern Ukraine. That was followed this morning by what seems to have been a full-scale Russian assault. The situation is really, really fluid, and there's a lot of unconfirmed information flying around. For example, you've had troops coming over the border into eastern Ukraine, the, the parts that are still controlled by the Ukrainian government. You've had Russian troops in Belarus Uh, moving towards Kiev. There are reports that Russian troops in Crimea, which Russia illegally annexed in 2014, they are moving north. There are pictures online of of Russian military assault helicopters trying to land just near Kiev, like 14 kilometres from the city centre. It's nothing. So that is the military situation. um, And there are pictures of casualties already. In terms of the Ukrainian government response, Up until this happened, the Ukrainian government had been trying to play down some of the risks and say, "Okay, everybody, keep calm. You know, this is serious, but it's under control. It's clearly not under control anymore. And so the Ukrainian government has declared martial law, has mobilized reservists, and is clearly throwing everything at this. The response from the population is interesting because while the government was pushing this message of everybody stay calm, there was a sense among Ukrainians that they wanted to do everything they could to prepare. They're used to the realities of living with Russia on their border. So what you saw in the past few weeks and months was the creation of a new civil defence force. Civilians were joining up. Some of them were being trained by military veterans, some of whom who'd fought against Russia in eastern Ukraine. And they were going out into the hills around Kiev and training with wooden rifles at weekends, giving up their their weekends, you know, office workers, people with no military background at all, 
just doing anything they could to prepare for, for what might lie ahead. And lo and behold, we now have what looks like a full-scale military invasion. Wow. And um, and obviously the global response will be crucial to how, how their efforts play out. How is the world reacting? So NATO has come out with a very strong statement and saying that, you know, if this goes any further beyond Ukraine's borders, it will re- regard an attack on one NATO member as an attack on all. This is the collective self-defense clause, which was only invoked once before in NATO's history, and that was after 9-11. And NATO is sending troops to its eastern flank to reinforce in case the conflict spills over. And I imagine in the Baltic states in particular, which used to be part of the Soviet Union, they're watching that aspect with considerable concern because they border on Belarus, where you've got these, these Russian troops. So quite a strong response from NATO. I think the German response is really interesting because Germany, for a long time, positioned itself as a kind of bridge between Russia and the EU. It was facing both ways. It had extensive relations. Germany's economy is export-based. It has a huge trading relationship with Russia. It had this new gas pipeline running under the North Sea, bypassing Ukraine. So there would be no need to pay transit fees to Ukraine, but it would bring a lot of natural gas to Germany. That was just about to go into into operation, and Germany has now suspended certification. It had been under pressure to take action on Nord Stream 2 for a long time and had refused to do so. It's now moved and said, we're not going to go ahead with this. We'll see how long that will last. A strong statement from Chancellor Scholz. And interestingly, the head of the German army published a statement this morning saying, our cupboard is bare. You know, this is quite serious. The former defence minister in the government of Angela Merkel also came out and said how angry she was at the way Germany had, in a sense, been left flat-footed by the Russian moves and there should have been a stronger effort to push back against them. Alex, as Anish was saying, it's it's great to have you um, on. You're normally heard on our sister podcast, World Review. We tend to be more insular on this one as, as the primarily Westminster podcast. So um, I know that our listeners um, will, like most of the news agenda here, be thinking about this primarily in terms of the UK response. And we see it all through that lens of what Boris Johnson is doing and how things are playing out in Westminster, whether sanctions are tough enough and so on. So it'd be great to hear from you Looking at it globally, how big or small a player is the UK in this actually? And what does the UK's response look like to other countries? I think the thing to say is that a lot of this will be happening on the Berlin-Paris axis and NATO obviously as a major player. Now, the UK has a strong voice in NATO, but the UK on its own is, you know, it doesn't have a particularly big relationship with Ukraine. One of the things about the relationship with Russia is that the UK, it gets a relatively small proportion of its natural gas from Russia. So there isn't that considerable economic interest. In terms of the sanctions declared, there was a lot of build-up to to what the UK announced, but it was relatively restrained. A handful of banks, not the biggest ones, uh, and a few individuals The European Union, the European Commission announced much more significant sanctions, the US as well. So the UK response has looked slightly muted. Now, there is a sense in which you don't want to deploy all your sanctions at once. 
um, because then where do you go? You want to make them significant enough that they send a very strong signal, but you want to you know, you want to leave yourself some room for, for further action. This has been the conundrum for the US. My colleague Emily Tamkin was writing on this for the New Statesman this week. What all the countries are looking at, what's the most proportional response? Um, what exports, military exports to send to Ukraine? Does it need to do anything more to defend against cyber attacks? You've seen Ukrainian ministries coming under cyber attack already. So I think the policy response is evolving. But we heard from the Prime Minister Boris Johnson just um, a short time ago, and he was he was promising more action. Let's wait and see what they come up with. Well, thank you so much for joining, Alex. We'll let you get back to a very busy day. Thank you. So that was really interesting from Alex on how the UK's response has been in comparison with the sort of rest of the world. But um, what's the response been like in Westminster to how the government is dealing with this so far? It's interesting. I think there's a there's still a feeling that this is, is such early days and it's a really fast-moving story. We're recording just after the Prime Minister's statement. Our mission is clear. Diplomatically, politically, economically and eventually militarily. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. And so I say to the people of Russia, whose president has just authorised a tidal wave of violence against a fellow Slavic people, the parents of Russian soldiers who will lose their lives, I cannot believe this is being done in your name or that you really want the pariah status it will bring to the Putin regime. And I say to the Ukrainians in this moment of agony, we are with you. We're praying for you and your families, and we are on your side. By the time that people listen to this, he will have probably already made his statement in the House of Commons at 5pm tonight, and there'll probably have been more international reaction as well. And so we'll have a bit more of an idea of exactly what sanctions are expected and so on. Um, but Boris Johnson has has just promised a massive package of sanctions in, in his statement. Speaking to people across the parties I think there's a sense that um, they're still sort of working out their responses but I think the really interesting thing aside from everything that Alex was saying about the bigger global situation is just sort of what this does to the UK political debate in the next few days and weeks um, or indeed months because I think it's so much of what we've been talking about will just be swept off the agenda. I've been working on a piece on Article 16, whether that's likely to be triggered this week. Don't think I'll end up writing that piece. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, there will be a small but loyal core audience who really want to read that this week. <laughs> like, it would be rogue of the UK to trigger Article 16 right now. Um, so things like that will just be swept off the agenda. I mean, this is a huge crisis in, in case that isn't already abundantly clear. There's a sense from the government, from backbench conservatives who aren't happy with Boris Johnson, from Labour, from the Lib Dems, that the tone has to be constructive right now and that whatever the government announces, everyone will row in behind it. So the tone will have to be constructive. But under the surface, I think it's likely to be like what we saw at Prime Minister's Questions yesterday, where... Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer were sort of jostling to appear constructive and calm and sort of leaderly and authoritative. But under the surface, they were exchanging political blows. And so everyone 
you know, all of Boris Johnson's critics are thinking about what those blows look like and what those sort of topics are. There's still the question that we've we've had in in recent weeks about the presence of Russian money in our politics, and that's certainly not going to go away. But basically, how effective can sanctions be, given how bedded in some you know, Kremlin-linked money is into the UK political system, thinking about how to do that constructively. But obviously, Labour in particular have been pursuing this line that, you know, the Conservative Party is full of cronies, um, you know, full of dodgy contracts, they mismanage public finances, contracts for their mates, this sort of air of dodginess and mismanagement of finances is something that they've been pursuing for quite a while as part of their bigger, you know, attempt to shore up their own economic credibility. And this issue just opens up a whole new frontier for that. You know, the links between the Conservative Party and Russian money. I think they think it would be crass to go too hard on that right now. But they're still really thinking about that. And the same with other backbench politicians as well. We saw that from Caroline Lucas yesterday. Yesterday, when I asked the Prime Minister about Russian meddling in UK elections, he looked very shifty before claiming he wasn't aware of any. (laughs) Given that, as his Defence Secretary said earlier this week, that information is as powerful as any tank, can he explain why he is turning a blind eye to allegations of Russian disruption? Why is he playing fast and loose with our national... Prime Minister... I repeat what I told her ages ago, if I think I've got it right. I've seen absolutely no evidence of successful Russian uh, in- interference in any of our, uh, any of any election or any electoral event. Beyond the illicit finance question, I think that maybe in the in the longer term, in the next few weeks, Labour will slightly pivot onto questions around how well prepared the UK was for this kind of crisis. We heard that from Alex as well. It's great to have the international perspective that Germany is feeling um, ill-prepared for this crisis. Um, I think we'll be seeing the Labour Party looking at the integrated review last year. I can't remember its sort of wishy-washy name, but, you know, sort of a new approach for global Britain and this, like you know, much-anticipated review that talked about a tilt to the Indo-Pacific um, I mean, Russia is still mentioned as a as a major threat in that report, but this idea that you can pivot away from those issues was was completely wrong ultimately. And then I think that the difference between or the tiny difference between Labour and the Lib Dems on this is that the Lib Dems will be going, I think, much harder on um, cuts to troop numbers um, because I think there are plans to cut. 10,000 troops um, in the coming year or so and that's a sort of specific Lib Dem line of attack. That line of attack on defence spending is is probably another sort of obvious, if you're talking about the sort of ping pong of Westminster politics, that's probably another obvious vulnerability for the Conservative Party because those cuts have been sort of implemented for over a decade of Conservative-led governments, you know, making the, you know, their own defence ministers sometimes, you know, speak out against them and sort of noises off from backbenchers about it. That could be a particular vulnerability, I think. Yeah. And I, and I also think on, on that in particular, I think another tiny dividing line maybe between the Lib Dems on this and Labour is that the Lib Dems will be much more comfortable making the case that the the kind of liberal, multinational, working closely with Europe approach that is required by this practice is 
really ill-suited to Boris Johnson's approach. Boris Johnson has never been about working closely with Europe. um, And that's exactly what's required for this situation. I think the Lib Dems, their worldview is so about that. And that's really fundamental to their message to the electorate. Labour's a bit, you know, still wants to work closely with Europe, but um, might not be pursuing that political argument as closely, sort of wanting to seem really strongly pro-European. But I think that's a bruise that the Lib Dems are really happy to punch that ultimately, aside from his personality and seriousness or otherwise, that actually just the sort of the Boris Johnson approach to global affairs is not very well suited to this moment. Then I suppose the the other big big thing that we haven't mentioned is how this plays out within the Conservative Party. That's really interesting too, because certainly from speaking to lots of people this morning... There is a feeling of real surprise at how essentially harsh the Conservative Party has been on Boris Johnson's response to the crisis, that given the magnitude of this and the seriousness of the crisis, you would sort of expect complete unanimity and everyone rowing in behind the Prime Minister. And that's kind of the tone that everyone is striking. But I think that, you know, lots and lots of MPs have made no secret of you know, how disappointed they were yesterday by, by the, with the pace of sanctions. And it means that even though we're no longer talking about party gate, it's still very much present. Someone said to me earlier, if they were one of the big rebels in the Conservative Party at the moment, they wouldn't be talking about party gate anymore. They said that I'd be doing what Keir Starmer is doing. I'd be saying, you know, look, Boris, I agree with you. I, you know, we're, we're also worried, but, but why can't you get this right? You know, this sort of constructive concern, but flagging all of the issues with the response. And that's really what we're seeing. We saw that from David Davis, you know, senior Conservative backbencher who has called for um, air intervention by the UK in Ukraine. It's easy to forget that a few weeks ago he was calling on Boris Johnson, you know, in the name of God, go. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then um, Tom Tugendhat, who happens to be probably the most interesting voice on foreign affairs in the Conservative Party, has been very critical of the UK government's response so far. He's the only person really in contention for the Conservative leadership at the moment. He's the only person who's who's indicated on the record within the past month that he would stand if Boris Johnson were to face a leadership challenge. So even though Tugendhat and Davis aren't really talking about their leadership ambitions mm-hmm. anymore, it is playing out. The, the party gets scandal and the, ultimately the weakness of Boris Johnson's leadership is sort of bleeding through into the way we litigate sanctions and and our response to Ukraine. That's so interesting because all of Boris Johnson's prior weaknesses that were exposed by scandals like Partygate, like the cronyism during the contracts that were awarded during the pandemic, are almost um, sort of highlighted by his response so far. And I understand that it's early days, but his response so far to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thinking about those defence cuts, for example, it's really interesting that the Lib Dems will will go hard on on the size of, of our military. But also Labour were doing a lot on how there's been so much wasteful spending in the MOD. So they they released a dossier of waste in the MOD at the beginning of this year, which you know didn't really get picked up, but it shows that that's 
part of their response that we've spoken about before, switching from talking about cuts to talking about waste and mm. public service min- mismanagement and, and poor, wasteful public spending. So it's interesting that although many people would probably wisely say with their received Westminster wisdom, this is an opportunity for Boris Johnson to look prime ministerly again, mm. you know, and people won't want that kind of partisan politics, a bit like during the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 crisis when people didn't really want to see Keir Starmer taking chunks out of Boris Johnson at the dispatch box. While while that may be true, and you could see it from the more conciliatory kind of exchange that we had at PMQs this week, those weaknesses of Boris Johnson are still being exposed in, in similar ways. And like you say, by similar voices from the Conservative backbenches as well yeah. um, so far. Um, and in terms of the integrated defence review that you mentioned, it is really interesting because I think that lack of preparation and almost complacency for a crisis like this, we could have seen it coming. I remember fairly recently, a few months ago, I was at a sort of off-record event with a number of diplomats, former diplomats, politicians from the Labour Party, actually, and others, the leading lights in foreign policy in this country. And everyone was sort of speaking sort of chin-strokingly about China and the and the Pacific tilt. And Russia was only mentioned very briefly towards the end. Mm. And it was almost dismissed as like, oh, well, the main threat from Russia is sort of cyber attacks and interference in elections and that kind of thing. There appeared to be quite a bit of complacency about the threat that, that Russia still posed. So I think if Labour were to switch from talking about the sort of London grad laundromat that uh, mm. that Keir Starmer was sort of hinting at during PMQs when he talked about sort of no longer allowing London to be homes for, for oligarchs loot. If they do want to switch to that accusation that the sort of the British government just wasn't re- prepared for this action f- by Putin and that that integrated review and this placing of global Britain in a different sort of world world order. If they want to go on that being a mistake, I think that will be sort of quite quite fruitful for them. Mm, I think so, because um, the, the other thing just... It's been so interesting having these conversations this morning because it's it's so early days and there is this feeling of crisis. So I suppose the strategy in different parties is still being thrashed out and nothing set in stone. But the big thing that they're thinking about really is that you know there's a there's an argument to be made by um, opponents of Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party that the conservative approach to foreign donations has helped to bed Russian money into the UK and essentially shore up Putin's power base. There's an argument to be made that the Conservative Party has played a really unseemly role in Vladimir Putin's, in the position that he's in now. But that is such a a sort of cold argument to be making when this is about Vladimir Putin and Russia rather than about, you know, a random Tory minister and the donations that they take. I think there, there's still sort of anxiety in, in opposition parties about how um, how hard to go on that or whether to go there at all. And as you say, maybe the, the spending route would be a more fruitful one. But I think it's interesting. Also, again, this is the sort of thing that feels a bit sort of callous to say, but, you know, senior journalists suggested to me yesterday that they think that you know the government is enjoying this rather a little too much. I I wonder. I don't know how how Boris Johnson's clip that that we just watched will go down with people, but 
if it isn't sort of rude to say so, I think he is rather enjoying having a moment to be prime ministerial again and, you know, to just sort of deliver his statement, you know, in front of a union flag. And, you know, and to say, you know, all you people who are sort of worrying about my leadership, you know, you know, you have to be serious again. But I wonder if that comes through in the tone of it. Um, again, that's something that... Um, it's, you know, again, it, it, this is going, all going, going to be about tone in a way because it's so important for unity on the British political front and as well as unity within NATO. Uh, but there are so many criticisms that can be levelled at, at Boris Johnson and the Conservatives and basically you have everyone around him, including Boris Johnson's backbenchers, all wondering how hard to go on that right now. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I understand why, you know, it sort of may be callous to suggest that, but I not necessarily. Like Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary, a key ally of Boris Johnson. I mean, the kind of quotes that he's been giving throughout the build-up to this, you know, the whiff of Munich, that was really quite controversial and incendiary. Um, I think he said Putin's gone tonto more recently. He said we'd kick them in the backside like the Scots guards did during the Crimean War. You know, some of this stuff is quite, it is sort of Johnsonian in tone and, and a little bit embarrassing and also has the potential, you know, to to rile people up in, in the wrong way. It just doesn't sound like diplomatic language. And it does give a hint of sort of, you know, the British bulldog spirit coming through in some of those in some of those remarks. And then I suppose just one final thing that we'll definitely end up talking about more in the coming weeks is the impending refugee crisis off the back of this. Already there are, you know, an estimated up to a million um, Ukrainians crossing the border into Poland. There will have to be conversations about how many refugees from Ukraine the UK is prepared to welcome. In some cases that has been politically difficult for the government and in other cases it really hasn't there really wasn't that much controversy over taking refugees from Hong Kong for example um, but it's not clear really the extent to which that will apply in this case you know Pretty Patel's kind of hard line on on immigration whether that will sit comfortably with a refugee crisis on our doorstep. Mm, and you saw some of the bungling of helping Af- Afghan refugees into the country only last only last summer. So again, we've been quite insular, as I was joking earlier, Anush, yeah. um, that, you know, focusing on how this will play out within Westminster and in the British political debate. But of course, we have a great sister podcast, which Alex appears regularly on, as well as our colleagues, Emily and Edo and Jeremy, where they will give you your your global briefing. Um, yeah, so highly recommended. Yeah. And if you haven't listened to it before, it's called World Review. So go and find it. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And now it's time for a section I'm going to call I Ask Anush. <laughs> I've had lots of um, amused but frustrated tweets about me straining the You Ask Us format in recent weeks. <laughs> it's just hard to find another way to introduce this section. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for this um, second section, um, we've we've obviously focused a lot on Ukraine, but you know, that's not the only crisis rumbling on um, globally at the moment and only development in British politics because, of course, we have seen the lifting of all legal coronavirus restrictions in England and Ush. That's kind of flown under the radar a little bit because it's been overtaken by other events. But you've been working on a long read on this and um, looking at, you know, whether the end of these restrictions does kind of signal a new phase in the pandemic. What do you kind of make of our approach in the UK of, of lifting these? So it's really interesting because it is very nearly two years on from the date of the first lockdown, which was the 23rd of March. And today, all remaining legal COVID restrictions, including, you know, that you have to self-isolate if you test positive, have been lifted in England. I think all legal restrictions had already been lifted in Northern Ireland, but Wales and Scotland are taking um, a bit longer uh, to sort of gradually get rid of their restrictions. And um, it sort of happened under the radar, really. I mean, it was it was something that Boris Johnson announced he wanted to bring forward and that kind of was said to have shorn up a bit of his sort of very tattered support among the Conservative Party before the before the last recess. So it's interesting that, that you know, it hasn't caused a huge amount of controversy, considering it is quite controversial. Um, you know, it will now be down to your own personal responsibility whether or not you, you stay at home if you test positive. You are still being advised to stay at home for five days, but there's no support for it anymore. That £500 grant that you would have got in certain situations situations has has been removed. Free testing is going to end after the 1st of April, other than for um, people who are vulnerable. You know, that's quite a radical measure considering that the virus is, is still spreading. And you saw from Omicron how fast a new variant can emerge. And it's almost sort of lucky for, for the prime minister and the government that that variant didn't prove to be particularly fatal. Having said that, you know, there's quite a lot of support for, for ending these measures. Um, and even sort of NHS voices who I've spoken to, although they're fearful for what it will mean for healthcare staff not to have free testing, and they are pushing for healthcare staff to, to be able to have free testing and key workers elsewhere as well. There is this sense that um, the bigger problem for the NHS now is the backlog of uh, procedures, you know, non-COVID related that's built up during the pandemic that they need to try and get down. 
I spoke to an NHS doctor who was working on COVID wards, or at least when I spoke to him, you know, he had some COVID patients. There weren't sort of wards specifically for COVID patients at that point because they had so few of them. I said, you know, what what will be the sign for you that the pandemic is over? And he said, basically, you know, when people when people aren't talking about it anymore, when people are bored of it, when people don't fear it anymore, it's almost like a mindset thing. Um, mm. And that came up a lot with the people, the experts who I spoke to for the piece that I've written, which you can find online. So there was a pandemic historian who was who um, used to be the sort of historian on call for the US Center for Disease Control, the CDC. And he was telling me, actually, you know, the last phase of every pandemic is basically amnesia. People just forget. People forget how mm. horrific it was. There's not very many memorials. In fact, there aren't any, I don't think, memorials to the Spanish flu victims in the UK, at least. There's not even an official National AIDS Memorial either. So even with very recent yeah. pandemics, they get forgotten very fast. And it's almost like we're on the brink of that happening now. And there are very many problems with that. First of all, the the risk of new variants coming and, and meaning that we have to bring contact tracing back and self-isolation back. Even with that, you know, I spoke to someone at um, COVAX, which is the operation to get the, the world vaccinated. And he was saying there's not much you can, even if you vaccinate people, there's not much you can do to avoid new variants because you can still catch COVID when you're vaccinated. Um, so for him to say that, you know, suggests that, you know, there's not a huge number of measures that governments can take beyond what they've already done to mitigate for those circumstances. Another thing that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be thinking of is the risk of long COVID, which is the still slightly mysterious sort of collection of sometimes very debilitating symptoms that people have a long time after having caught the virus. And so, you know, just the idea of letting letting COVID spread, even if it's, you know, not not affecting people very badly, could mean that you have sort of more people contracting long COVID. So that's another thing. But, you know, even then speaking to a disease expert at UCL, he said, well, you know, we have to work out, you know, the impact of long COVID on people's quality of life compared with dementia, sort of cancer, other diseases that have, you know, a far higher mortality rate or a far higher impact on people's quality of life because society has to continue with those diseases. Really, I mean, from from the people that I spoke to, and I spoke to a, a large number of people for this piece, there was the sense that we are moving into a new phase of the pandemic which some politicians are describing as endemic. But actually, if you want to call a disease endemic, you have to already know the predictable patterns of the disease to say it's operating at a normal level, if you like. And we just don't have that body of, of evidence for COVID yet. So it's that's a bit of a misnomer. But um, we are in this new phase. Really, the warnings are from Jeremy Farrar, head of the Wellcome Trust, who used to be on SAGE, is that, you know, this is still uncharted territory. We still don't know what the next thing the virus is going to throw at us. So it's, you know, it's irresponsible for, for people to declare that this is the end of the pandemic because it's never going to end. We are in the age of COVID now. It's amazing. It's as though you can sort of will the end of a pandemic by wishing it to be so. That, that like, as soon as people fatigue it enough, and certainly our, our politicians conservative backbenchers essentially want it to be over it kind of becomes over because then restrictions are lifted the, the prime minister has to do that and the public as well um are talking about it less i think that's that's fascinating that like actually the end of a pandemic isn't is in a way psychological yeah yeah exactly i found that the most interesting part of the piece and also we are all doing it so this this was a really interesting observation from jeremy farrar who said in this country people have come to accept 2000 covid admissions a day to hospital 200 plus deaths a day 
And that's become the norm. Now that's normal for us. Whereas, you know, I think we all remember when we started seeing hundreds of deaths in those figures that they would announce on the news, we all felt horrified by it. But now, you know, whether we like it or not, whether it's conscious or not, we've recalibrated what we think is an acceptable number of, of deaths from COVID. Although that sounds hideous, it's, it, it is this sort of human nature. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, my colleagues, Alva Ray and Alex Kruger. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.